Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Isn't it intriguing to think that from the beginning to the end of the Bible exists an incredible storyline of God's glory and His plan of redemption? Today, Dr. Neufeld continues the series with a message entitled Prophets, Judgment, and the Return of the Exiles. So let's go back to the Bible. Nations, empires, and entire civilizations come and go. It seems almost impossible to imagine, but we know it's true. Where today are the Hittites, the Aztecs, the Assyrians, the ancient empire of Ugarit. Even though some people groups remain like the Egyptians and the Italians, yet their empires are long gone. Ancient dynasties that seemed altogether enduring have all passed away. See, from that perspective, should not surprise us at all that the dynasty of David passed away. Furthermore, it lasted for such a short period of time. From the rise of King David, who ascended his throne in 1011 BC, until the reign of King Zedekiah, who witnessed the Babylonians break down the walls of Jerusalem and burn the temple to the ground and deport the entire population of Judah into exile in Babylon, 586 BC, Only 425 years had passed. That's how long a descendant of David had ever ruled from a throne in Jerusalem. For the majority of that time, the actual territory of the Davidic kingdom, well, it was actually quite tiny. After 586, no king has ever reigned in Jerusalem again. Seen from the perspective of history, such a story is not unusual. But from the biblical perspective, well, that account is astonishing. Psalm 89 is a psalm that celebrates the Davidic kingdom as a special gift of God's love. I'm reading verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then in verse 29, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Now to verses 36 and 37. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. See, from one perspective, the all generations, well, that came up just a bit short, only 425 years, and to the most part, a rather miserable 425 years. After Solomon, the kingdom got smaller and smaller, and its influence waned quickly until it was destroyed. But like all the promises in the Bible, not one of them ever fails. Jesus is the direct descendant of David, and his spiritual kingdom now is larger than any kingdom in human history and shows every indication of not waning, but expanding. And here's a surprising fact from history. Were it not for the defeat of Jerusalem and the burning down of the temple, these amazing events would never have transpired. And it is at this pivotal moment In the storyline of the Bible, the reader is called upon to stop and consider the ways of God. What may seem like a moment of failure is indeed a great moment of triumph. Well, the cross of Jesus, his mutilated body being placed in the grave, was but a prelude to the greatest shout of triumph that the world has ever heard. And the same is true of the destruction of Jerusalem. And for that reason, Every child of God who ever goes through a difficult period of time in in which it seems like everything that they had ever hoped for seems to end in failure, well, they need to live in hope. You see, child of God, if today 
you're discouraged and disappointed, learn from the Bible. God is leading you to the very place where he will do, according to Ephesians 3 verse 20, far more abundantly than all that you can ask or think. God's promises to you will not only not fail, they will be fulfilled in a greater way than your wildest dreams could ever have anticipated. If you learn anything from the Bible story, at least learn that. And so today, as we trace the Bible storyline, we, we come to the destruction of Jerusalem and what transpired next. See, anyone paying close attention to the Bible storyline will notice that these events are not surprising. The prophets had been predicting these events. We had in our last broadcast noticed that the prophets Amos and Hosea had spoken to the unique situation in Israel. And then Joel, and then there was Jonah, and then Micah, and then Isaiah, Obadiah, then Zephaniah. They had all spoken to the unique situation in Judah. But as the time of the defeat of Jerusalem drew near, two important prophets spoke most directly of what was going to occur. Habakkuk had prophesied that it was God himself who had raised up the Babylonians to punish Judah for her sins. God had ordained the rise of Babylon. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who lived to see the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, said the same thing. I'm reading from Jeremiah 15, verses 1 to 2. Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, and those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. Indeed, because of what the prophet said, Judah had to realize that what happened to them was not because God couldn't keep his promises, but what happened to them was foreordained by God himself, who would not countenance the rebellion of his people. Years earlier, Moses had foretold these very same events. Several unique features in the Bible storyline need to be observed at this point. Please note that the captivity of Judah actually happened not in one, but in three separate stages. The first invasion happened in 607 B.C., we know of that one because that's the time when Daniel and his friends were carried into exile. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, in 2 Kings 24, verse 1, and in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1. This was a time when the king of Babylon came and carried away some of the nobility into exile in Babylon. And then the second stage happened 10 years later in 597 B.C., in this time period, about 10,000 people of Judah were carried into exile. Esther and her uncle Mordecai were among those people, as well as the prophet Ezekiel. What's fascinating about the book of Ezekiel is that he tells the people of Israel living in exile in Babylon not to hope that they are soon going to return to Jerusalem, but that God had promised to destroy that city. And then halfway through the book of Ezekiel comes the news that, well, Jerusalem has fallen. And interestingly enough, the book of Ezekiel, which predicts judgment against Jerusalem, then after the news of the fall of Jerusalem becomes gracious and hopeful and encouraging God's people with the long-term plans of God. And so you have the first exiles, which include Daniel, then the second, including Esther and Ezekiel. Now comes the third, 11 years later. It is 586 BC, and the Babylonians utterly destroy Jerusalem and slaughter a great many of its citizens and drag many of the rest of the population into exile. 
You can read a full account of how horrible this moment was by reading the book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah, who saw the destruction of Jerusalem and lived through it. The remaining few left in the land included the poorest of the poor and also Jeremiah himself. After a series of events, the remaining Jews left in Judea flee to Egypt and Jeremiah himself died there. And then for a period of time, the Bible records the Jewish people living in Babylon. And here is where, again, this amazing twist in the Bible storyline proves to be breathtaking. Were it not for the Babylonian experience, two things would never have happened. First, the Babylonian experience ended the Jewish fascination with idolatry. And second, the Babylonian experience proved finally and ultimately that the God of Israel was not a tribal deity, while all the nations had their gods as well. The Babylonian experience proved once and for all to the Jewish people that there was but one God, their God, who ruled the whole world. Now, how did that revelation come about? Well, to a large part, it came about as the Jewish people were taught to read the Old Testament prophets and were shown that everything that had happened to them as a people had already been foretold. God had moved the nations, and also, most significantly, the experience recorded in the book of Daniel changed the heart of a people. In Daniel, we read how the decrees of the king of Babylon were thwarted in the experience of the fiery furnace, for instance, where Daniel's three friends were protected by God. But in Daniel chapter 4, we learn how King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was himself humbled by the God of Israel and had to acknowledge that his dominion, that is, the God of Israel's dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Listen to what Nebuchadnezzar himself said, recorded in Daniel 4 verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Not only did Nebuchadnezzar recognize this, but so did the Jewish people. And the Babylonian captivity taught them that their God rules all and that the idols are nothing at all. One of our listeners wrote to say, this message captures the heart of our awesome God. Thank you so much for this truth, Pastor John. I love the passion you display in expounding God's word with truth and humility. Feedback like this lets us know that the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are hitting the mark. With God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching and engagement using every effective medium at our disposal. Our special thanks to all those who listen, watch, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment to Bible teaching is essential. Please continue to stand with us with your prayers and support. You can join us in this effort with your financial gift by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Daniel 9, 1-2 contains a fascinating account. Let me read these two verses and then comment on them. 
In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, here's what the passage means. Daniel has been doing what a great many of the faithful Jewish exiles were doing while they were living in Babylon. In order to understand their situation, they were studying the writings of the prophets. And Daniel was deeply engrossed in the study of the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 25, verses 8 to 9, Daniel would have read, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. Well, there it was. God had foretold that he had called Nebuchadnezzar to do his will and punish the people of Israel for their sins. But Daniel would have kept reading down to verses 11 and 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And after the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. And then Daniel would have studied Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 11. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill in you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Well, there again it was. Unlike Adam and Eve and unlike the people of Israel at Kadesh Barnea, Daniel was convinced that whenever God spoke, he would not lie. If God said the exile would last 70 years, then so it was. God was not finished with Israel. She had a hope and a future. Of course, Ezekiel had said very similar things. In his vision of the dry bones recorded in Ezekiel 37, listen to verses 11 and 12. Then he, that is God, said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people and I will bring you to the land of Israel. See, armed with these promises, Daniel sets out to pray. And then something marvelous happens. Many years earlier, long before Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the prophet Isaiah had said something in his day that absolutely no one would have understood. I quite frankly doubt that Isaiah himself understood what the Holy Spirit had prompted him to write. I'm reading Isaiah 44, verse 28, where speaking about the Lord, he says, Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be rebuilt, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Of course, in Isaiah's time, there was no one whose name was Cyrus, and so that prophecy had to lie dormant for hundreds of years. But then we come in the very first two verses of the book of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, by this time, 
the Persians had defeated the Babylonians, and all sorts of earlier prophecies just all came together exactly at one time. Cyrus, that name from years earlier, becomes the king, and exactly 70 years after the exile, he issues a decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and commissions that the exiles from Israel should return to their country and rebuild their temple. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are written during this time period, and they record the most remarkable of events. We don't have the time to review the intrigue of that time period. Only that when it was all done, walls had been built around Jerusalem and the temple was built. If one is to follow the Bible storyline, it's necessary to read the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi who spoke to this very time period. Of particular fascination is the moment in which the Jews lay down the foundation of the temple. Ezra 3 verses 10 to 12 says that when the foundation of the temple was first laid, there was a great shout of joy among the people. And many of the priests and the old men who had been alive and had seen the original temple that had been built by Solomon, well, those people wept openly because this foundation seemed so insignificant compared to that which once existed in that place. For how could this thing they were building ever compare to that which once existed? And how could this small ragtag group of Jews restoring Jerusalem ever compare to the splendor that once existed in that place? This was not like Solomon at all. But Zechariah encouraged God's people in chapter 4, verse 10, not to despise the day of small things. Haggai promised that, that God would in a special way fill this house with glory and that the glory of this house would far surpass the glory of the former house. And Malachi 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And so with that comes an expectation as, as the exiles of Israel, or as Isaiah called them so many years earlier, the Lord's chosen remnant would return to this place and would lay a foundation for the temple and that the temple that they would build in this place, even though built in weakness and at a time of great vulnerability and with far less glory than had been witnessed when the first one was dedicated, yet even so, this temple would see a glory that the other one had never seen. And as the storyline of the Old Testament comes to a conclusion, one is left with a sense of the grandeur of what one has been told. The great creator created this earth for his glory and created man as the crown of his creation. Yet man rebelled against his creator, but God never gave up on his creation, nor did he relinquish his hold on the human race. After all, God was in Christ, or in his Messiah King, reconciling the whole world to himself. And so God promised that the earth would endure through the covenant with Noah. He promised to bless the whole world through his chosen people in the promise to Abraham. He promised to lay down the principles for righteousness in the covenant with Moses. And he promised that his king would enter the world through the throne of King David and from his center in Jerusalem. And yet so much went wrong along the way. From the time of the rebellion of Kadesh Barnea to the dark ages of the judges, to the idolatry of Solomon, to the division of the kingdom, to the kings and false prophets who led generations astray, to the time when the Babylonians burned Jerusalem and its temple to the ground and put out the eyes of the king of Jerusalem, but not before slaughtering all his sons before his eyes. 
And as the Old Testament ends, a ragtag group of exiles from Israel lay the foundation to the temple with a wild hope and a dream that the promises are not over, not at all. The God who only speaks truth has spoken the truth that he gave these great and precious promises. And if he says so, then, well, it must be that in spite of human rebellion and sin, God's word simply cannot fail. See, from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the events recorded there until the time when John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, over 400 years passed. When would God act? When would he do that which he had promised? How would he bring to fulfillment the longings and the hopes that he had planted in the hearts of the believing people of God? See, I find in this story the story of faith. For what is faith in the end but the certainty that God's word cannot and will not fail? Personal circumstances might seem to indicate otherwise. Difficulties might even multiply. The unbelieving world may move on and laugh at the people who believe. But those who have faith will say, if God has spoken, then the matter is settled for all times. You know, the Old Testament ends with the following words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And how those words prove true. Over 400 years later, along the Jordan River, a man dressed in the same clothing as that which was worn by Elijah, in an Elijah-like way, was heard throughout all Israel with the overwhelming message, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the next stage in the storyline of the Bible takes a new and overwhelmingly beautiful twist in what happens next. Jesus of Nazareth appears on the scene and everything changes. John, I sort of marvel at the fact that God just weaves himself through all of this incredible history. It's a miraculous thing, and then we come to the end of the Old Testament, and we come to these 400 years of silence. What's that all about? Yeah, I think it's silence only in terms of the fact that there was not a prophet that had been appointed by God to speak. It's certainly not silent in the sense that nothing happened, and so much did occur, and any reader of the Bible sees it immediately because the Bible ends with a group of exiles coming back, and then suddenly we pick it up again, and you know, you got Israel and the Romans are in charge, and you say, what all happened there? And there are two books that are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they're worthwhile to read, and they're called first and second Maccabees. Again, they're not inspired, but they provide an excellent history of the time period and tells us something about how Israel developed and some of the things that actually transpired. And they provide a lot of the background material that open up the doorway to the New Testament. Thanks so much, John. And we look forward to the great story continuing right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Today, there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new Laugh Again booklet, Five Steps 
to making life rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. To request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.